I like quiet moments. I like moments that um, maybe make you stop and think about something about does it actually belong or, you know, am I crazy looking at this thinking it's it's something that it's not or but I think that, you know, for for work that I'm doing for photography, I tend to have an obsession with like the, te- the technical issues at hand. Mm-hmm. You know, so much so that sometimes I'm, you know, bl- blinded to the other things that are actually more important. But uh, I'd say that maybe my uh, my personal style or voice had something something related to attention to detail. That was photographer Young Kim. And for him, it's weird to live in a place that's so big and so busy that people aren't checking up on each other. He prefers smaller communities where everyone knows each other. His longing to be part of something tight-knit might come from his early childhood, when he and his family lived in Sandpoint, a town of about 600, located along the Aleutian Islands. Young's sense of community has been, at times, reinforced by growing up in the restaurant industry. Specifically, he remembers the staff dinners, when everyone would sit down together for a meal after their shift. Today, Young is the co-owner of Aquila Space, a community gallery and photography studio in Anchorage. It's a place that he and his co-owner, Joe Valreni, hope to be a hub for community and for knowledge. The photography that Young is working on right now is about his mom and how their relationship is changing. When we're younger, our parents are the caregivers. But as we get older, those roles can switch. So it's important for our expectations to be flexible because things don't always play out the way we imagine. So here he is, Young Kim. Welcome to Chattermarks, a podcast of the Anchorage Museum. Dedicated to exploring Alaska's identity through the creative and critical thinking of ideas. Past, present, and future. My name is Cody Liska, and I'll be your host. You know, Young, I actually have one of your photographs hung up in my house. I was texting you about it earlier. It's the sunset photo of a road in Alaska with trees on either side. Mm-hmm. Does that happen often? People telling you that they have one of your photos hung up in their house? Um, maybe not as often as, you know, before when I was actively trying to sell prints, but it's, it does happen from time to time. And, um, it's kind of a, you know, it's, it's a nice feeling, um, just knowing that you're in a wall somewhere, you know? Mm-hmm. Are you not actively trying to sell prints anymore? Um, it's not something I'm focused on right now. I, uh, I think I'm kind of taking a break from most things, just trying to finish school. So, um, I, I haven't been actively doing it. Something I noticed in my research on you is that it seems like for years you've been either in college or you're going back to college. Does that sound about right? I think, yeah, that sounds about right. I think um, I really struggled with, you know, school and, uh, you know, like the idea of school after high school. And, and you know, I, I tried it for a few years at UAA and didn't really work out. Um, and, you know, I uh, I thought I was going to be done with it. You know, just, I was just going to start working and not really 
pursue a degree of any kind, but uh, I was watching a TV show about um, these like uh, broadcast journalists, and it looked so fun that I quit my job the next day and enrolled and went back to school for journalism. And then while I was doing that in undergrad, I kind of fell in love with this idea of like, uh, you know, photography is, you know, beyond just like being a technician and making, you know, pictures for work. And I decided to apply for grad school and get an MFA. So I'm trying to wrap that up now. What was that program that you watched that um, got you interested in journalism? Uh, it was just like a kind of a really corny, cheesy Korean drama called Pinocchio. Um, yeah. Oh, yeah. Like, not really about broadcast journalism. It's more of like a revenge story, but it looked fun. <laughs> but it got you stoked on journalism. It, it, there was aspects of it where it was like, you know, uh, it can, you know, like, like a published story could change someone's life or the trajectory of someone else's life. Or, mm -hmm. you know, there's more than just like, uh, this is what A, B and C happened at, you know, here and here and here, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's really great because I can totally, um, I can totally understand where you're coming from with that because I am the exact same way. When I was younger, I would watch, you know, I'd watch movies and whenever there was a journalist involved, I always loved the, like the pursuit of a story. Mm -hmm. And, you know, like you said, what can happen with that story, the impact that that story can make in the actual, you know, the real world. Yeah. And I, I think, I think at the core of it is just like, you know, I love storytelling. I love, I love watching TV and love watching movies. Um, you know, and I, I love a good story. So I think that's what I'm drawn to. Mm-hmm. Earlier, you said that you you struggled with the idea of school. Mm -hmm. What about school did you struggle with, you think? I think I had this like idea where if I wanted to learn something, I could just teach it to myself. Mm -hmm. You know, like I grew up with this age of like YouTube and, you know, like you could read books and teach yourself something. Um, but I think what I come to find out is... Uh, you know, as expensive as schooling is and like, you know, as much as like, like the formalities of the school that I don't really agree with too much, but you know, it's mainly about community, I think, and, you know, getting plugged in with peers that are interested in the same thing as you and um, kind of this idea of like, uh, like communal suffering. I love communal suffering. <laughs> <laughs> like, uh, you know, late nights studying together, I, you know, that, that kind of stuff is, it's fun for me. You know, I've had conversations with my with my sister who's in her 20s mm -hmm. about college and she also kind of struggled with the idea of college and the more that I've talked to her and she's back in college now and she's doing super super well um but you know, right out of high school she was like I'm going to get into college and like I said she struggled with the idea of it and the more that we talked about it the more that I realized that she's the type of person that wants to just be doing the thing. You know, she doesn't want the um, kind of the preamble that is college up until you do the thing. She just wants to be actively doing the thing, whatever that thing is and learning by experience rather than in college, you learn theory. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I agree with that idea too. Um, I think what I, what really like, um, you know, when it switched into a gear for me and really made sense was, uh, you know, like at first I was kind of looking at the assignments 
uh, you know, in, in school, like, oh, I have to do this and do this for a grade. And then there's somewhere along the line where I was like, maybe I should just treat each thing as like uh, something I could add to the portfolio. Mm-hmm. And then um, as you're doing these assignments that you're kind of treating as like the real world job, then, you know, the the mindset's uh, changed for me. So you you had to shift your mindset. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> um, I think, you know, like, uh, it's also a little bit different, I think, from other other uh, programs of study where, you know, other things you might be just doing, like, a lot of memorization or, you know, studying, like, terms and vocab. But I felt like in the journalism program at, at UAA, uh, you know, every opportunity was given to us to uh, just go out and make real work and use that for the assignments. Do you remember any of those assignments if they if they made any specific impact on you? I remember, uh, I think, you know, so my emphasis was always in image making. Mm-hmm. And um, I remember one class, I, you know, didn't really see myself as a writer. So my my assignment for the entire semester was a little bit uh, changed or modified to where I just made images for almost every other student in the class for their stories. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was kind of a pretty uh, similar uh, way of working to, you know, when I did my internships in, in town and, you know, um, handling a, a kind of a diverse workload and managing all those different types of stories. You know, I thought that was a pretty good representation of that. Um, it was it was pretty similar from my experience in how the other newsrooms I've worked in uh, operated. And when you first decided to pursue photography as a career, did you imagine what your ideal job would look like? I think when I was younger, I wanted to just uh, take pictures and travel and, you know, do that kind of thing. And it's definitely shifted since then. But um, I think back then I didn't have a clear idea of what I wanted it to look like as a career. I just I just had this idea where photography is something that I want to implement in my life and make money from, but I don't know how I'm going to do it. Mm-hmm. Which, which I think is you know um, is is okay because it was something that I found as a hobby in the first place. So I don't know if I if at a young age if I you know mix it in with money and you know responsibilities that it would have evolved into what it is today for me. Uh, so I think it was okay to not know at that time. Mm -hmm. For sure. Yeah. Did you have any photographers you were looking up to back then? I'm pretty bad with names and like associating names with, you know, projects or like, you know, or like, you know, an analogy, but like, I, I would never, I almost never know the names of like directors or like cinematographers for movies, but I can recognize the work that they've made. Mm -hmm. Um, so I'm I'm pretty bad at the names, but growing up I I looked at a lot in that geo. Uh, and I couldn't tell you the names now, but um, yeah, I just I love that geo and how they were able to get in and dissect something and and show the intricacies of them and you know just uh, tell that story. And that geo, they they connect with you know, your idea of wanting to be a traveler, you know, traveling and taking photography. Is that 
Um, is that maybe where you got that from? Or did you find Nat, Nat Geo as you were having that feeling and you were like, oh, this, this meshes with me? I don't, I don't think that I've ever consciously made that connection. Um, I, I do remember a time where I, I thought I didn't want to work in an office all day, every day. And I wanted to use a camera in some, in some way. Um, maybe subconsciously I was thinking about all those things at the same time, but, uh, I don't think I had thought of it in that sense. So in addition to your personal Instagram account, you also have this other account called eat with young where mm -hmm. you post photos of food. What's that account all about? It kind of just started because. I like taking pictures of food. You know, my parents, when growing up, they had they were in the restaurant business. Um, I felt like there wasn't enough food photographers in Anchorage, um, but I didn't know exactly how to get my foot in the door. So I just started making things at home and photographing them. And then friends that owned restaurants would let me photograph their food. Um, and it's kind of turned into that thing. Um, and, and now it's kind of just like a... Uh, uh, like a business card in an Instagram account where I can quickly show people food photos if uh, they're feeling hungry or they want to know what to eat somewhere. Um, and it's just an easy way to, uh, to show what the different types of eating is in Anchorage, I think. How often do people ask you about restaurant suggestions? Oh, geez. I feel like... Not that often, but, you know, like if I go out of town, I, I only travel pretty much to eat. So <laughs> I'm always like posting stories and then people are asking where, I, where I'm eating. And then I tell them it's not in Anchorage and then they get upset. And <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> what was it like growing up with parents who were in the restaurant industry? Um, <clears throat> it was... I think a lot of times it was tough for me. Uh, I, there was um, definitely like this relationship where they were working all day, you know, they were working hard and I understood that, but I also felt somewhat trapped, uh, you know, until I was old enough to like stay home on my own. I'd have to be at the restaurant all day. I couldn't, you know, go out and play sports with my friends or play outside too often. Um, and then, you know, also the way that my dad ran a kitchen was like very like, kind of OCD and that kind of shaped my personality a bit too. Okay. Um, so, and you know, there's a lot of different factors that I think have contributed to, you know, like I, I think playing by myself a lot when I was a kid kind of turned me into this person that's longing for community. Mm -hmm. um, so there's a lot of factors that I think have influenced who I am right now that stem from uh, growing up in the restaurants. Mm-hmm. Yeah, my family had a retail business when I was growing up. It was a mm -hmm. snowboard and skateboard shop. So I know what it's like to grow up in a business. And, you know, I've done a lot of thinking on this. And I think maybe the best way to put it in an easy kind of capsule is that you just grow up differently. Yeah. You know, mm -hmm. when when other people are maybe going to high school football or hockey games or, you know, they're just hanging out at the house with their family and maybe they're sitting down for dinner. Um, I knew that my life wasn't like that. 
I knew that, you know, we would be going to Lucky Wishbone to pick up some burgers and then bring those to the Diamond Center to sit down and eat with my my dad. And you know what I mean? Like it was just um, the structure of your life is so much different than your friends around you. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but, you know, I also think, you know, as different as that experience was, uh, you know, maybe for you and for me or for anyone else, you know, there's no like, I think because we felt like we were the outside looking in on what this like family in America should look like, um, we maybe felt like it was a, a detour from that. But I feel like there's so many different ways of how families operate in, in the U.S. And, I, you know, and everyone's so different. I think that's the beautiful thing about it. Yeah, I completely agree with that. That's that's a really healthy outlook on that. I wonder if if you thought that same way when you were younger. No, definitely not when I was younger. Okay. Um, I think when I think when I was younger, I was like, uh, you know, why do I have to be at the restaurant and all I can do is plant this patch of grass outside in the front of the store? Yeah. You know. Um, but you know, growing up, I, I definitely think like you got to make the most of what you have and um learn from it what you can um and there there is no like you know the there's no model model and i think that if there is one it's because it's been like shoved down our throat through media mm-hmm. so when you look back on your childhood at the restaurant now what are some things that come to mind um oh man i i feel like the thing that immediately comes to mind was you know, when I was younger, I'd always want to help in the kitchen and they'd say, no, you know, go in the corner and play. <laughs> and then as, and then as soon as I'm older and want to do my own thing, they're like, no, you have to be at the restaurant helping out. <laughs> um, but, you know, but besides that, I remember like, you know, all the all the people that worked with my parents, like that were in their young 20s or early 30s. They were always really friendly and, you know, maybe I don't know if they enjoyed it, but they would always entertain, you know, conversations with me. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, we, you know, we had this thing called family meal where we're, all the employees eat together and I, I really enjoyed that. Um, yeah, but it was just kind of, a. it was, I think it was fun looking back. I, I think it was fun. And I wonder if you were, cause I know I was exposed to different type of people than you would have been otherwise because of the restaurant you know, and maybe because of those employees? I think so. Uh, I felt like, I feel a lot, a lot of people that work in kitchens and, you know, work in restaurants are kind of like uh, always grinding and, you know, trying to, you know, make something for, for themselves. Um, I don't, and I could immediately tell when I was a kid who were the lazier workers and who were the harder working workers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, that, that, that stands out to me from what I can remember. What's your relationship with uh, laziness? You know, when you when you see something that maybe you perceive as laziness, do you have a certain feeling toward it? I I don't necessarily like laziness. And I think in, in, my, in my vision, it's, you know, it's okay to rest and it's okay to have like downtime. But if you're going to, if you say you're going to do something, then, then you should be doing something, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, or like, you should be diligent in what you're what you're doing, even if no one's looking. I, I think that's important. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's a lot of times where like I, I'd see you know maybe the dishwasher just like lounging around, drinking Mountain Dew, 
But uh, as soon as like my dad walks in the back, he looks like he's starting to wash dishes, you know? Yeah, yeah. He's acting. Yeah, yeah. Just putting on this like outward show. You know, I asked that question because my dad has this animosity toward laziness. And I think that a bit of that, you know, for better or for worse, has rubbed off on me. Mm-hmm. And so when I encounter laziness on like a professional level, you know, if I'm working with somebody, say um, I'm working with someone on the issue or the physical issue of crude back in 2015 when I was doing that magazine. Um, and I encountered someone who said they wanted to be a part of the project Mm -hmm. and there was a lot of good energy behind it, but then they're dragging their feet, you know? And I'm like, Mm -hmm. you know, why would you have said you wanted to be a part of this project if you didn't actually want to be a part of it? You know, it's kind of like, what you said earlier about following through. Mm-hmm. I think part of that also, you know, like some people always will have good intentions, but they don't necessarily know how to manage their own time or like, mm-hmm. and, you know, that's, that's another frustrating issue for me when people can't manage time. But, um, I think, you know, maybe they haven't had the opportunities to be able to, to learn how to do that or, you know, or, it, they weren't, you know, brought up in a situation where that isn't even important, you know? Yeah. I know in order to manage time, I have a ridiculous amount of alarms on my phone and I keep notes um, in just so many notebooks. Mm-hmm. How do you manage time? Um, I, I live and die by my calendar. Uh, so I usually handwrite notes and then at the end of the day, I'll dump them into a calendar or make them digital. Um, I, I also use a lot of alarms. Um, so, you know, I hate being late for things, but I also hate being early for things. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I read a lot of, um, books by, uh, people in the military mm-hmm. and they're usually, you know, they turn out to be like self-help books. I'll pick them up because I'm like, Oh, this sounds interesting. And then it, it turns out to be a self-help book, which I appreciate. And I, I, I like, but one thing about, the military is you are always early, you know, and if you're not mm-hmm. early, you're late. And, and I've kind of like absorbed that mentality, you know, like I have to be, I have to be early to things. Yeah. It's just, for me, it's like, if I'm, if I'm 10 minutes early to something, that's, you know, maybe eight minutes I could have been spending on something, a different project, or, you know, I could have allocated that time a little bit better for something else. Mm-hmm. Um, like I love being right on time to something like if it starts at five, then I'll be there right at five. Sometimes if I get there too early then I don't know what to do and that kind of just frustrates me also. Do you ever find yourself sitting out in your car in front of a place like waiting for, you know, that two minute mark where you can just walk in and be exactly on time? Uh, I used to a lot, not, not so much anymore since I kind of, have developed a better rhythm for how long it takes to get somewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, like another thing for me is like, I probably more than the average person should. I run out of gas so many times in the while driving, <laughs> and then I'm and then I'm even then I'm late to something that which drives me nuts. But <laughs> I I hate taking detours, so that's why I almost never stop for gas. 
you should set an alarm or put it on your calendar to put gas in your car a couple times a month. Yeah. So what I'll do now, you know, I, I'd much rather take a separate car ride to the gas station, you know, even if it's at night or, you know, when it's dark out just for the sole purpose of gas, rather than stop some along, you know, along the way somewhere else. What's the most recent time that you ran out of gas? Um, I think it was about a year ago and I'm just on the highway and I, you know, you can kind of tell when, when you're pressing the gas pedal, it's not doing anything anymore. Yeah. You're just kind of <laughs> inching along. Yeah. And then, um, yeah, but luckily, luckily I always find like a, like a pocket on the road where I could just pull over and stop. Um, but you know, it's funny, like my friend, he, he came to help me out. I gave him my gas can and the gas station's like, I don't know, like two blocks down. Um, it was like pouring rain, but it was like two blocks down. He said to be back in like five minutes, but it takes them like over an hour because they couldn't figure out how to take the, the nozzle off. And I guess he had, he had asked like five or six people and they all couldn't do it. Um, so then I wonder how much people actually ever, you know, stopped to fill those things up or actually f ran out of gas. It must be way less than me because I, you know, I was able to just get in like a few seconds, but. <laughs> I remember um, the last time I ran out of gas and my friend Sonny's dad came. And, actually, I think it was him and his dad came down and his dad, his name's Jack. He's like you know, after he asked me all of the obligatory questions about how do you run out of gas? Why'd you run out of gas? Why didn't you put gas in your car? You know, all of those, mm -hmm. those, uh, questions a parent would ask a 16 year old. Yep. And, um, and I remember him saying, you know, uh, he's like, it's just like anything else, kid, you got to feed it. <laughs> and, and I remember that to this day. And whenever I, I'm low on gas, I'm like, I got to feed my truck. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, um, you know, how, like parents always like carrying around snacks for their kids. Yeah. I uh, I just I just carry gas with me in the truck now. Oh, you do really? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I just have a full <laughs> gas can in the truck for all times. <laughs> um. So, other than a few posts every once in a while, there's not a lot of other information about you on the internet. How much of that is intentional? I think it's pretty intentional. I don't I don't like to share too much about myself online or or if i do i'd rather have it just be about you know the work mm -hmm. um i've always been kind of reserved so maybe that has something to do with it but um you know i don't i don't need everyone to know who i am or what i look like you know what do you think it is about putting your personal information on the internet that turns you off uh it just doesn't seem very uh you know having a, a lot of personal information online doesn't it doesn't seem to serve a purpose for me. I, I think, um, you know, if, if, if someone wants to reach out to me, there, there's ways to contact me and I, you can develop a relationship that way. But I think, um, you know, knowing you can only put so much online and even that can get lost in translation or miscommunication. Mm -hmm. And that it just, it seems kind of impersonal for me. Um, I'd rather have those real connections.
if you had a choice, like money wasn't an issue, mm-hmm. what would you prefer to do with your time? Oh man, I, I, uh, I'd love to just make, make pictures and make, you know, make things out of them, whether it's like prints or books. Um, I enjoy, you know, giving back to community in some sense, mm-hmm. uh, you know, whatever it might be that I can offer them, you know, it's, if it's like a workshop or it's, uh, just donating my time and, uh, you know, technical knowledge, then, you know, I'm down for that too. Um, you know, I enjoy coaching kids football, you know, just anywhere that I can maybe have a positive impact on someone else. Um, I enjoy that. Did you say that you coach football? Yep. I didn't know that. Yeah, I um I played in high school. Uh there was a coach, you know, that I thought was pretty influential and impacted my life quite a bit, so decided to just help out here and there, you know, at service for a while, diamond for a little bit. Um coaching Pop Warner right now, but you know, it, it just changes depending on the the season and the year. What can you tell me about that coach? Uh yeah, I, I just thought he was he was really down to earth. You know, I he um and he was always looking for different ways to explain how to do something you know and, and trying to work with work with whoever he is uh try to teach something to and I, that just really resonated with me uh and i think that i think even having a, you know multiple coaches on the field at one time and everyone having a different coaching style um made a lot of sense to me in how people should be taught things mm-hmm. um you know and then on one hand i think if you're being taught to, then you should be open to different types of teaching. Mm-hmm. But um, it, it made a lot of sense for me. And it, I think even now in, in grad school, like hearing so many different voices on, you know, the direction of what I'm working on, it really reminds me of that time uh, having so many coaches' voices on the field, you know? Yeah. You know, something that I was just thinking about is do you feel like in the way that you pursue photography, do you feel like there's a difference in photography and journalism or are they one and the same for you? I think it's, it's pretty different for me. Okay. Um, I think, you know, for, for things that are journalism and photojournalism, I think very much the voice belongs to, uh, the subject of the story. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but I, but my photography, I feel like, is a is a marriage between you know, uh, you know what is being photographed, the subject there, and then, you know, what am I trying to say, and how does it resonate with the the person looking at the picture? Um, I think it's important to hit all three for me. What do you think it means to be a photographer in Alaska? I don't. I don't really. You know the the. The fact that we're in Alaska doesn't change too much for me um, in, in what I'm pursuing. Uh, maybe, except for maybe the fact that people that live here might feel, you know, the things that people feel living in Alaska, I think, um, are applicable to people living everywhere. Mm-hmm. You know, so I'm always trying to pursue something that's uh, like the common between people. So I don't think that Alaska for me is, um, you know, it's not it's not a big shift in you know what it means to be a photographer. Um, 
geography for me is not a big factor in, in uh, what it means to be a photographer. Mm-hmm. Things that people are feeling, people are feeling everywhere. So, um, you know, they say like, if something is oddly specific, then the more general it is. And I think that people that feel something very specific because they live here, they'll find that people living elsewhere are going to be feeling the exact same thing. Yeah. Yeah. You know, there are only maybe a small handful of publications in Anchorage to shoot photographs for. Have you found that that affects how much consistent work there is? I haven't thought about it too much lately. Um, since I've I've stopped freelancing, and I'm working uh, I'm working in PR now. But um, you know I don't think that necessarily the lower number of publications uh, negatively or positively impacts the work that there is for photographers in Anchorage. I think you know I think everyone has a, a different style and a different forte, and um, I think publications recognize that and will find the right person for the the right job. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think a lot of people in Anchorage try to um, do a lot of general photography uh, as, a, as a means to make money. But I think that the ones that are most successful are the ones that are just sticking true to you know, their own personal style and voice. How would you describe your personal style and voice? I like, I like quiet moments. I like moments that... Um, maybe make you stop and think about something about does it actually belong or, you know, am I crazy looking at this thinking it's, it's something that it's not or, but I think that, you know, for, for work that I'm doing for photography, I tend to have an obsession with like the the technical issues at hand, Mm -hmm. you know, so much so that sometimes I'm, you know, blinded to the other things that are actually more important but uh, I'd say that maybe my uh, my personal style or voice had something something related to attention to detail. How do you decide on a personal project? Do you do research or does it usually just come to you? It's a, a little bit of both. Um, I really feel drawn to things that are personal to me uh, that, you know, like I said before, are also applicable to others. Um, I try not to photograph things that are outside my scope of, you know, my own knowledge. But um, but if it is a little bit out there, then I'll have to do some research and think about things. But I try not to force a certain direction too much. I, I, I kind of like taking photographs and then doing some research on, you know, things that are related to that subject material. And then, you know, kind of doing that over and over and see where it takes itself. Yeah. Um, I think that's, that's an important part of the journey for me. A while back, you traveled to Adak Island to photograph it mm-hmm. and you put those photos into an awesome little magazine. What motivated that trip? Um, I was just very interested in this idea of things that were left behind and how things get repurposed and reused, you know, by, by people who need them. Um, so I had a, a classmate and friend that was going down there and writing a story. So I, I also just tagged along and um, I took as many photos as I could in one weekend and um, kind of focused a little too heavily on uh, maybe like this sensationalized idea of an abandoned town. Mm-hmm. But um, 
but yeah, I just uh, it was important for me to kind of experiment and in sequencing and uh, putting together a little zine and uh, making something physical out of it. You said that you focused or you feel like you focused too much on a sensationalized idea of an abandoned town. Do you feel like if you were to go back today, you would do that differently? You would shoot those photos differently? Oh, I think definitely. I think, um, you know, I think I went there initially because I was, had this fascination with the, the old buildings that were getting run down and, you know, torn up. But, um, I think while I was there, I really fell in love with this, this small town of about a hundred people and, um, how they, how they just like efficiently live together as a, as a, as a unit and community. Uh, and I, that really resonated with me. Can you tell me about those people? You know, what, what stood out to you about them? Um, you know, like it was just, I love small towns because I feel like they're the truest representation of what like society should be, where everyone keeps each other accountable, um, or you know they they know each other enough to make you know small jokes here and there, but not get on each other's nerves. Or sometimes they do, and you know that's part of the beauty too. Yeah. Um, but you know it's just a hundred people down there, but we were there, and you know they're you know, getting together at people's houses for dinner, and uh, you know hanging out on the beach together. And I, I thought I just thought that was really great. Can you see yourself living in a small town? Uh, yeah, I, I think about it almost every day. I just want to like live in a dry cabin for two or three years. And, you know, if it's like a 50 to a hundred people, that's, that'd be good for me. What would you be doing? Uh, I don't know. Just, uh, just enjoying the day without too many, too much to think about on my mind. I think I, there might be some times where I, you know, long for like a bigger community or like somewhere where I can uh, contribute. But I, I think, you know, there's plenty to do in a small group and, um, you know, I, I definitely be photographing, but uh, of, of what I'm not sure. Why do you think you long for that, you know, to, to be in a small town? I don't, I don't know. I, I, it might have something to do with, you know, my early, early childhood where uh, I lived in Sandpoint for a few years. And, uh, you know, like we had owned a restaurant there and, you know, like kids from the school would come to the restaurant on the day that we were closed to celebrate birthdays together. And, you know, uh, you know, almost everyone knew who everyone was. So I, it's just, it's like a, it's like a fantasy for me. I think it's, it's it's weird to live in a place that's so big and so busy that people are not like uh, checking up on each other and things like that, you know. Yeah, and I, I just looked up the population of Sandpoint, and in the twenty twenty census, it was less than six hundred. Mm-hmm. So there's less than six hundred in this town that maybe has this, um, you know, you look fondly back on. Can you see yourself living in a place like? like Sandpoint, you know, when you, when you do think about that dry cabin experience for a couple of years? I think definitely, uh, you know, it'd be great if I could find some sort of residency and do that, but, uh, I, I'm going to try to make it happen one way or another, but, um, yeah, I think that'd be great. Mm-hmm. You know, something else that you worked on that focused on a smaller community was the Spinardian with 
fellow journalists, Sam Davenport and Victoria Peterson. What was your role in that? Um, yeah, so that was very much the 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 project of Victoria and, and later on Sam. And uh, we were all classmates together at UAA and um, worked at different places together, uh, worked on different things together. And um, I think they uh, they were in need of a photographer and I was in I was wanting to help out so that it just kind of happened that way um and it was a very natural process because we worked together at the school paper together and uh, you know other things throughout our time at, uh, as undergrads and the mission behind that magazine as far as I understood it was that it focused on the neighborhood of Spinard which is in Anchorage and told mm-hmm. the stories of the people who live there does that sound about right yeah yeah I think um an easy way to put it would be like all things about Spinard. Um, and I think focusing on, you know, a smaller community like that, it's, um, it's, it's great to see the smaller stories that go unnoticed be put in the spotlight. I think. When you think about your time at the Spinardian, do any stories come to mind? There was one about, um, a guy who was using insects to clean up, you know, like, uh, uh, clean out like skulls for um, you know whether it was f- for um, like a skull that you want to display like animal skulls if you want to display it or for scientific research and I thought that was a cool story um, that's probably the one that stood out to me the most I remember that story I liked it mm-hmm. and if I remember correctly the photos did you take those photos I did and it was a guy and his wife or his girlfriend and they uh they were in their garage like the photos were taken right mm-hmm. yeah yeah that was a great um at least in my mind like a slice of alaska piece yeah it's like um i thought it was, i thought it was really interesting because you know just driving by the houses you might never know what's going on inside but it's you know there's cool stuff like that all over the place in, in spinard mm-hmm did that work affect how you understand how a publication is put together? The work you did on the Spinardian? I, I think just a little bit, in, you know, maybe in handling like uh, handling deadlines and, you know, making sure that things were getting turned in on time and managing multiple stories at once. Um, beyond that, not so much for me. I, I'm sure it was, it was much more of a endeavor for Victoria and Sam. Um but I kind of just focus on just the, the photos. Mm-hmm. Did you learn anything else from helping put the magazine together? Or at least, you know, taking the photos? Not not so much in taking the photos. Uh, I think that I become accustomed to working in a certain way by then, just from other, other publications that I've been involved with. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I do remember once where we got our shipment of issues for um, one of what I think issue three or four or something like that. And the images that were sent in were like not sized properly somehow. And all the images were like in my eyes unusable, but it was already too late to, to get it figured out. So I was, I was a bit upset about that, but it's, you know, part of the learning process. If that happened or something similar happened today, would you be able to take it any differently? I think I would 
I think I would give myself more cushion room beforehand so that if something did happen, it'd, it'd be easier to get reprints done. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, making making sure that we have a final product. Um, I'm actually, yeah, I'm actually going through this right now, trying to finish uh, for grad school. You know, we have to have a, a, a new book made and, you know, certain size prints I need for the exhibition. And, um, you know, we... We have about two months left, but even that's a short amount of time. And I had to, you know, set deadlines for myself so that I make sure that everything's done on time and looking the way that I want it to look. Mm-hmm. So fast forwarding a bit to today, you're currently a part owner of Aquila Space, the gallery and photography studio in Anchorage. What do you do there? Um, I, 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 uh, I help manage the back in the studio area. Um, mostly, I, I feel like that's kind of like my playground. I'm always adding things back there, making sure that there's equipment that people want to use and, um, you know, that make it fun and exciting to use the space. Um, I think Jovell largely handles the, the front side gallery um, and the front facing aspect of the business. And I just support him in any way that I can. Do you and Jovell ever talk about visions you have for Aquila Space? Maybe, you know, where you'd like to be in five or 10 or 15 years? Um, yeah, we, we'll often go on short drives or get something to eat and, you know, just talk about uh, what we want it to be and what we want it to become. Um, and, you know, some are more, I think, loftier dreams or some and the others are definitely more practical in what we can do uh with the resources that we have uh, but it's something that we talk about often and um you know and, and as we get older and as the needs of needs of the community around us change those those ideas are also changing when you guys go on these drives you know what do you think aquila space could be in the future for anchorage I'd, I'd love for it to be like a hub for community, a, a hub for knowledge. Um, you know, I'd, I'd love to expand it a bit and include a, like a residency program there and provide tools that maybe are a little out of budget for, you know, someone that's just starting out or emerging. Um, but, you know, I think um, I think we're we largely, you know, Javel and I, we largely agree that it's, it should be a space that is inviting to new and emerging people that are interested in, in the arts. Um, if, if they want to pursue that. Mm -hmm. Do you feel like your motivations are the same as they ever were or have they changed? I think my, I think my motivations have largely stayed the same. I think that the way that I go about things and my, uh, I think that my, uh, like how much am I willing to put up with certain things has definitely changed as I get older. Um, Mm -hmm. more tolerant. Yeah. Like, yeah. Things I'll tolerate, uh, or like how, how OCD I can become, you know, I I think those have changed, but I think the motivations behind what I want to do and what I want to contribute to the communities is about the same as it's always been. And earlier you said that you're in public relations now. Yep. How often are you able to still take photos? So almost all my time outside of work, I'm, I'm working on pictures, whether that's actual photographing them or working on, on the prints. 
Um, you know, a lot of it is just based on the projects that I'm working on at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm kind of wrapping up a project right now. So a lot of it now is it's less shooting and more like computer and printer work. Um, but I, I still have quite a bit of time. It sounds like you have at least in some way looked back on that, uh, that photo book of ADAC. Mm -hmm. And I wonder how often you find yourself looking back on other old photos. Um, I don't look back on my own photos too often, but I'm also always referencing photo books and, um, you know, I think, I think to make pictures in a vacuum is not, it's not helpful for me or helpful for anybody. I think that, you know, by doing that, you're, you're not in conversation with any other photographs and you're kind of talking to yourself, but, um, I don't look at my own photos too often from the past, but I do look at a lot of photo books. I feel like you and Jovell used to post a lot more photos on Instagram because that was kind of like the the social media medium that that you both really excelled at, and you had lots of people commenting and lots of uh, likes and follows, but not so much anymore. Is there a reason for that? Yeah, I think my interests have just shifted a little bit since since then. I think I think in the past we were all looking at social media as a as a means to getting new work and new business. Um, but you know, I I think things have changed for me now. Where if I don't make any money from photography for the rest of my life, I'll still be okay. I'll you know I I have a day job. Um, you know, making pictures for me is not about making money. Uh, so I think. I think the idea of social media for me has changed. You know, I, I do, I do use the DM feature a lot in Instagram because I think it's a great way to keep up with community. But posting and you know, liking and following is not really a big aspect for me now. Do you know when that happened? When you shifted from feeling like social media was important to feeling like it was less important. Uh, I can't, I wouldn't say I'd be able to pinpoint that time, but probably within the last two or three, maybe four years, maybe, maybe it coincides with the time of when Kila space was starting to take off and it was, it became like a, a physical presence and, you know, I didn't, I felt like that was so much more gratifying than, you know, scrolling through an app on the phone. What do you think is one of the most personally significant photos you've taken? Um, what are the most, most significant? Um, I have, I have some photos now that I've been working on. They might be on my Instagram now, but, uh, there's one of some leaves surrounding two unicorn figures on a windowsill. Uh, there's one of my mom holding a watermelon. Um, everything that I'm working on right now is kind of of or about my mom and my relationship to her and how that's changing as we get older. And then other things are thrown in the mix, like, uh, immigration or this idea of the American dream and things like that. But, uh, I think those are some of my more favorite images. 
how do you think your relationship with your mom is has changed or continues to change? Um, it's you know it's it's kind of a weird shift where, and I, I'm sure a lot of people go through the similar thing where, you know, at one point I'm the child and she's the parent, and she's my caregiver. You know, she's taking care of me, but there's a point that she gets older. You know, I'm starting to take a little bit more care of her. You know, making sure she needs she gets to where she needs to be, making sure things in the house are the way they're supposed to be are they're supposed to be. Um, so then, you know, I'm thinking about, uh, you know, like who's taking care of who. You know, she's always gonna be my mom, but mm-hmm. um, you know, and I'm always gonna be her son. But what what is the definition of those roles, and how does that change over time? You know. Mm-hmm. And how do you feel like you're settling into that role? It is, it's, it's, it's a weird feeling because it's happening a lot sooner in my life than I thought it'd be. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, she, she suffered from two strokes already. Um, so her health is not great. You know, and I, and I kind of feel like this time in my young thirties, I'm supposed to be, this is supposed to be some time where you know, my mom and I can enjoy each other's company as just two adults, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But I feel like that's kind of been stripped away from the both of us because of these health implications and and the new, the, the new responsibilities in, in taking care of her. Um, so then that has me thinking about, like, you know, as hard as she worked her entire life after immigrating to the U.S., you know, to chase this, you know, quote, American dream... You know, like she sacrificed her body in pursuit of that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's like, it's not exactly what she thought it'd be. So. Yeah, there's, there's an element of like unfairness to it. It feels like. Yeah. Years ago, maybe five to seven years ago, my grandma on my dad's side had a stroke Mm -hmm. and it was so like, like tragic because Mm -hmm. my entire life, my grandma was, you know, the talker. She was kind of the glue that really connected that entire side of the family. And she would call us all up every single day. Uh, maybe not individually. Like she didn't call me every day, but she called me like, at least twice a month, you know, whether it was to remind me, um, that it's somebody's birthday or that she wanted to know how I was doing. And when she had a stroke, it stripped all of that away from her. And that was at least in my lifetime, her whole identity. And, um, I had, I had similar thoughts where I'm like, you know, she, she worked her whole life and now, she's sitting at home and all she wants to do is be around her family and she just wants to talk to her family. You know, it's, mm-hmm. it's that simple. She wants to be around those people that she loves and yeah, it was, it was taken away from her and I have feelings of that's so unfair, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I think, um, you know, who could have expected these things to happen and it, it takes so much away. Um, but I, you know, I, I think I have to often look at like the bright side of things and, mm-hmm. you know, realize that, you know, this new relationship is maybe not what I had initially, you know, thought it was ideal, but it is still a relationship, you know, and, and 
uh, it's like worth worth making the best out of it. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> well, and it also gets back to what you were saying earlier about how there's no there's no like set way that anybody's life should be you know Mm -hmm. our upbringing or our young adulthood or our adulthood or you know when we're in our old age there's no prescribed uh set for that and so to to grow up and kind of learn and understand uh, maybe grace, maybe that's the word, is to just be like, you know, I'm going with the flow and I'm going to have to face whatever it is that I am encountering head on. And I can't be mad about it. I can't be angry about it. It just is what it is. Yeah, I think that's that's it's, it's an, uh, head on. And I think, uh, you know, I think I think it's important to set expectations for yourself, but expectations can also uh, lead to disappointment. You know, so mm-hmm. um, yeah. But I think just you know, there's like that. You know, there's like that video meme where like you know the guys are saying it is what it is, and I think that you know, as funny as the video is, I think that's pretty important and applicable to pretty much everything that I'm doing in my life. You know, it is what it is. Mm-hmm. You know, Young, that does it for my questions. I want to thank you for spending this time with me. You know, I I, I was writing these questions down and um, I was looking at the photo in my house that you took. Mm-hmm. And I was like, it's, it's interesting that I see this photo that you took every day, but it's been so long since I talked to you. So thanks for talking with me, man. Yeah, yeah, it was a it was a pleasure. Do you have anything else you'd like to add? Um, you know, make pictures of things that are important to you. Uh, that's for everybody. Um, because things are changing every day. For more information about the Anchorage Museum, visit anchoragemuseum.org. This podcast was produced by me, Cody Liska, for the Anchorage Museum, with additional help from Julie Decker. Chattermark's music is produced by Keys Open Doors.